Hello, and welcome to How to Build a Village, a podcast about building communities when you move to new places. I'm so honored to have joining me this episode, Isabel Rogol, a friend and mentor, someone who is doing wonderful things with her own podcast and who has lived many places and who has lots of expertise to share on how to make a new place feel like home. So welcome, Isabel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So if you could share how many times you've moved around and what you learned about how to make a new place feel like home. Boy, uh, I've moved around um, a lot. So internationally, only actually as an adult or as a young a young adult um but even just growing up um i was from a family who moved around a lot because of my dad's profession um and so we moved around france i'm, I'm a french citizen so mm-hmm. we moved around france um and even to martinique which is in the french caribbean growing up so you know i did have primary uh, and middle school education in one place and that's the longest i really stayed anywhere so so i was used to moving around and then when i was 17 i went to the u.s as an exchange student uh, with the rotary thank you rotary youth exchange amazing <laughs> program and um and that kind of got me going on this on this global path so um, I, I returned to france and, and finished high school and started college in france and then i went back to the U.S. to Missouri for university and for journalism school. From there, I went to Cambodia for my first job as a reporter. And we can, you know, that was kind of random, but we can talk about that later. Uh, and then I went back to France, uh, but not for very long because I got I got twitchy again and uh, moved to Australia and uh, and from Australia to the U.K. to London, which is where I am now. Wow. And so each of those places, I mean, wow. I mean, you don't find people who have moved to any of those, let alone all of them. How did you get over the culture shock and how were you able to feel comfortable and settled in each of those places? So ironically, I feel like it's harder the more you do it. Um, The first the first couple times, you know, I was a young, I was a you know very young woman and a student, and I was just excited about where I was going, like you know, f- discovering the U.S. and then going to college. It was all super fun, and I wasn't really thinking that it was going to be hard, and I I didn't really miss the place that I was leaving. I mean, I miss miss my family a little bit, but and so that was that was all pretty easy. And when you're young, you have school, you know, you make friends really quickly. Because, you know, that's that's what happens when you're 20 years old. But now that I'm in my mid-30s, it's a lot harder. And now I know how hard it is. So the prospect of moving again becomes like a lot, a lot harder. The ways, the ways that, that I've found that help is definitely that I've moved, when I moved to Australia and when I moved to London, I moved with a job. So I already knew people within the company and it was a very friendly company. So I kind of started with my coworkers as a way to as a way to socialize um school and work i mean it's true it's true even when you're not moving around the world you know even when you're just in a in a new city in your own country is always kind of the first place that you go to socialize right yeah yeah you're right though that that helps that opens a door when you already have whether it's a a university program or a job that's already it's already fought a lot of the battle for you hasn't it yeah, in a way. I mean, Australia, though, I, I had never even been to the country. I never even visited when I moved there. And I knew literally one person. 
I knew. So I was working at LinkedIn at the time and we have this, this influencer. Um, I say we because I've been gone a year, but I, I, it's still very close to my heart. Mm-hmm. So we have this influencer program with a, you know, a bunch of, of people who use the platform a lot. And um, so there was one of these influencers who I was her editor and we had worked together a lot. And that was literally the only person I knew in Australia. And I showed up on December 30th and she very kindly invited me to spend New Year's Eve with her and her friends on a boat in Sydney Harbor. And uh, <laughs> so that was that was amazing. So, you know, even if you know, that was that was Naomi, by the way, Naomi Sinton. Th- thank you so much. You were so kind. And that's even if you know just one person, like tell, let them know, let them know you're coming. Even if it's like a friend of a friend or someone you've only know through Twitter, people are actually far more welcoming and open than you might imagine uh, when you're new and you're completely lost. Um, and I, everywhere I've been, I've found that people were very willing to um, to open their homes uh, and just make you feel at home, even if it's just like a meal um, or, or a holiday that, that you don't have to spend alone. It makes a big difference. And did you have that that person, a person in that role in Cambodia? Yeah. So Cambodia, in a way, was a bit of an extension of college because so I I um I was studying in the U.S. and um, I knew that I needed a job after college and I needed one right away because I had this massive student loans because I'm one of these crazy people with free education in my own country and I decided to go to the U.S. anyway and take out you know fifty thousand dollars <laughs> so um, I applied for jobs like anything I could find online I applied and I applied all over the world. My objective was to go somewhere that wasn't Europe or the US and to kind of go outside my comfort zone because I had lived abroad, but lived abroad in easy countries and countries that were culturally Western and that were just, you know, so it wasn't easy, easy, but it was easier. And so I wanted to expand my comfort zone. So I applied for jobs in like the Middle East and there was one in Honduras and there was one in South Africa and and it ended up with two offers. One was in Dubai and one was in Cambodia. And it just mm-hmm. felt like Cambodia was more of a challenge than, you know, malls in the desert. So that's where I went. And um, it was actually a newspaper that sadly is gone now called the Cambodia Daily. And um, it employed a very interesting mix. The, the staff was half expats, half Cambodian journalists, and always working in teams of two. So the Cambodians have the local knowledge, the language and all of that. And then the expat journalists usually had more formal training and had the ability to write the final articles in English because it was an English language newspaper. Mm. Um, And so it paid crap. (laughs) And as a result, it had a lot of young people, you know, kind of fresh out of college. Uh, So it was so it was very friendly. And it actually um, we we shared a house together. So the we, pay, we were paid pretty poorly, but we were given housing. And so in a way, it was like a giant dorm. Uh, and so that kind of helped uh, ease me into um, adult life in a way that, that looked a lot like college. And then later on, I changed jobs. And I had a, a very, very kind boss uh, at a different job for a few months, uh, an expat as well, uh, a woman who was not quite my mom's age, but but definitely older than me and and had her own kids. And um, she would have me over for brunch pretty much every weekend at her mm-hmm. family's house. Everywhere you go, you'll find people who will just 
open up their families to you so that even if you're very far from yours, you can still recreate that sense. And I think especially when you're when you're young and, and away from home for one of the first times and when you're during holidays, especially, it matters a lot. And I, I've found myself, I was, I was thinking about that, actually. I've somehow found myself surrounded by a lot of older women in my life who have served as mentors and allies and sponsors. I've never had a female boss, but I've had so many older women who have served as mentors. Oh, that's really nice. That's great that you're able to, it's a testament to you that you were able to cultivate that, those friendships outside of, uh, outside of your own country. So, so when you're back in London, how, how did you come up with the idea for Borderline, your podcast and newsletter, and then actually execute it, make it come together? Yeah, so I, um, as I was saying earlier, I used to work at LinkedIn, and I, I quit that job. It's been almost a year. Uh, mm-hmm. to, so I was there for seven very happy years and uh, went on sabbatical at the start of 2020 just because I had lived this very busy corporate life for a long time and I was a little tired and I wanted to explore other things. And um, of course, you know, 2020 didn't turn out to be the best year for a sabbatical because I could go nowhere and do nothing. So that became a little, uh, you know, frustrating on top of all the anxiety from from the pandemic. Um, so I spent a few months not doing much and then I just woke up one morning, I don't know, must have been in May with this idea for a podcast. I've been listening to podcasts for like 15 years um, since they first came about and never stopped. And I always thought I should do my own um, and never really did because I was so busy. And so now I had time and borderline, I, I call it a podcast for defiance, global citizens. And it really came out of the idea that this this life that I just described to you actually is not that unusual. There are a lot of people who, you know, live around, move around the world and, and live in different countries and have lives that straddle borders, whether they're immigrants themselves or uh, the children of immigrants or, or they're expats and their company takes them all over the place all the time or um, they're third culture kids and exchange students. And all, like there's so many of us. And I just didn't feel like there was a lot of media that was speaking to that particular experience. Mm. And so that's what I wanted to explore. And then there's also the second part to that. It's kind of the political context. Mm. Um, I was just looking at it again earlier uh, on social media. The um, the Citizen of Nowhere speech of Theresa May. Yes. Today, too many people in positions of power behave as though they have more in common with international elites than with the people down the road, the people they employ, the people they pass on the street. But if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. You don't understand what the very word citizenship means. I mean, that was four years ago, but it still pisses me off. Like, it makes me so angry when I listen to it because there's that quote, like, if you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. And then the next sentence is even more offensive, I find. It's like, you do not understand what citizenship means. That's- and I'm like, don't tell me what I understand. 
you have no idea who we are and how we live. It was so interesting when that, I remember that speech vividly. And it was almost as though she or speechwriters had sat down and said, how do we irritate expats the most aggressively? What what words can we choose? Because that became so many expats I know who didn't know each other were all posting angry responses to that because it does, it just undermines their reason for being, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's complete. It's like, you're telling me, you know, nothing about who we are and how we live. And you're telling me, you know, you're telling me who I am or what I believe or what I understand. And you've never even spoken to me or people like me. I mean, it's pretty hilarious. Recently, the, the guy who actually wrote that speech was on Twitter you know, saying, oh, we need to we need to stop with this culture of outrage and identity politics. And I'm like, you just wrote that speech here. <laughs> yeah, that's what you're doing. And so and by the way, it's not just it's not just like the right. Um, I I got really angry. Like I wrote a I even wrote an essay about it last week when there was this this post on on Facebook by Rebecca Solnit, who is a mm-hmm. left wing writer um, who wrote this post essentially complaining about Americans who say they'll move abroad if, you know, Trump is reelected because they don't like the country anymore and saying, you know, that it's a position of privilege to say and do that. And I was like, fine, I can, I can, you know, I can understand the argument, but there was a line in there that said, you know, expats have disengaged people with little impact. And I'm like, are we? Really? I mean, they're, they're not the experts that I know. I know people who are incredibly engaged and political and, and you know, fighting for their country and in different ways. And also this, this very notion that you only owe loyalty to the country that, that you know, that where you were born is, is, um, is problematic. So there's just this whole political context um, on, on really all sides of the political spectrum that makes me feel like we are misunderstood and our story isn't told or it's mistold. And so it's something that I wanted to react against and to, and to respond. And I think it's, you know, this idea of citizens of nowhere is so completely inaccurate, but I think there's something really interesting about exploring how people like you and me and our, and your listeners and my listeners think about identity and think about belonging and what is our relationship to to place when you know nowhere that we are is 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 permanent? Um, and and what does home even means when you feel at home in several places and in none entirely either? Um, so those are the ideas that I'm really interested in exploring. And for yourself, do you not to put you on the spot, but do you see yourself in London long term? I have no idea. I mean. As I was saying earlier, I think the the older you get, the more like the idea of moving again uh, is a little exhausting. Like I've done it five times, and I've and I've always done it alone as well. If I had to move for a partner, or, you know, some some circumstance that made me, or for or even for a job, I might. Would I just do it as of Hey, I just feel like doing it right now, which is what I did before. I don't know, but I'm I'm in a I'm in a tough spot to be honest because I have pre-settled status in the UK right now. In a little under a year, I'll be eligible to apply for settled status, which means you know indefinite leave to remain in the UK and is a bit more safe of a of a situation as an EU citizen in this country. And I don't know. I mean, I I hope that I'll be approved. It's 
I'm unsure because, well, the, the rules are very unclear and it's just kind of how the, whatever the home office feels like that day. And because I am now self-employed and uh, self-employed is a generous word because, <laughs> I mean, I do a bunch of things, but they don't bring in much income. So if that's going to become a problem with the home office, I don't know. Uh, so we'll see if, if they, if they turn me down, I don't know how much energy I have for fighting it and, and appealing and all of that. It just, I get to the point that if this country doesn't want me, I'll go give my talents somewhere else, but it's, I don't know. We'll see. I, it's so hard to see the future right now with everything that this year has been that I'm, I'm, you know. I'm seeing to Christmas right now and it's kind of hard to see beyond. Because would you say London feels like home? I don't know if it does. For me, it's interesting. I, I didn't get a um, like a visceral this is home reaction to London. The first two years were actually quite hard. It's not a city that I fell in love with. I think some people do. Some people are really in love with with London and I I didn't quite feel that way mainly because it's probably a little bit too big for me like it's it's so sprawling and it's impossible to get anywhere in any reasonable amount of time unlike Paris which is pretty much a 20 minute city like you can go anywhere in 20 minutes if you hop on the metro but uh, at the same time the journalism community here has been incredibly welcoming it's been a place that I've really made the most helpful and friendly professional contacts and and I have you know good friends here now so I don't know I I was hoping this year it's funny you know you make plans and God laughs um when I went on sabbatical this year I was thinking okay this is the year that I'm going to take time to really explore the city and make it home and you know take the time to enjoy it because I spent my first three years in London, so 2016 to 2019. You know, I keep a spreadsheet of where, what country I'm in at any point in time, not for fun, but because for immigration reasons, I need to spend at least six months a year, six months out of every 12 months period, I have to be in the UK in order to maintain my eligibility. And um, so I track because I used to travel a lot and it really adds up. And so my worst year, I spent five out of 12 months not outside the country, wow. just being on the road a lot. And so that makes it hard to really, you know, commit to a city and and it's going to sound cheesy, but like build a relationship with a city. It's like a person, you know, you just got to, you got to have time yeah. with it. You got to, you got to spend time there. I was hoping that the, that the uh, sabbatical would, would help me do that. And I had a whole list of things that I wanted to see and do in London. Of course, that hasn't been possible. So I'm actually now sitting in London and I miss London. I don't know if you feel that way too, but I haven't been in the center of the city in so long. I just miss that feeling. I miss the people around. I mean, right now I have my flat in my garden in my neighborhood, but I could be anywhere in the world. It really isn't that, you know, significantly London. I just had a virtual book club meeting last night and people mentioned that this kind of malaise, this feeling that, you know, you're in this, a really expensive city and yet you're not enjoying the the museums and the theater and the, the, the skyscrapers all the things that you think of when you think of London and the reasons that 
I fell in love with the city. You know, and, and I know obviously anywhere you are in the world, that's the case, but you probably aren't paying as much for the experience, you know, of, yeah. of being in in your in your house. And I know it is, it is what it is. I mean, I I try to take the long view that a lot of things that are unique to the UK, the fact that schools are open and even as you know, sports, that everything else is canceled. Whereas I have friends in the States who like the football or soccer is still on, but the schools are closed. And yeah, or, or that's crazy. You know, some places where the um, bars and restaurants are open, but the schools are closed. And I do like that the the country has made that a priority as tough as it is to have the theaters and the museums and sports yeah. not operating. I can, I can see that, you know, coming from the U.S. And I am at a point now that I wouldn't move back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I loved my time there, just because, yeah, it's not really aligned with my values anymore. But, you know, for me, the option to go back to is in France. And France, you know, does have schools open and everything else closed and kind of that similar attitude. And so I, I miss France sometimes. And I think, you know, should I move back? But I also know very well that I would. I enjoy being a foreigner somewhere in a weird way. And I think if I went home, uh, it would, it would be difficult uh, over the long term. Um, So yeah, for now, you know, I mean, there's, there's tons that's good in the UK. I think the thing that has made it difficult for me to kind of fall in love with it in the way that I fell in love with Sydney almost instantly when I was in Australia is the time that I came here. You know, everyone keeps telling me, oh my God, if you were in London in 2012, you know, with the Olympics and everything, it was so different. But I arrived, I got my contract to move here on the day of the Brexit referendum. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that was, that was weird uh, karma. Uh, And I, I, I landed here in August, late August, 2016. And so my entire experience of this country has been the you know incredibly angry debate mm. over Brexit. It's been increasingly demeaning, violent, hostile rhetoric against immigrants. It's the first place that I've really felt like an immigrant. Mm. You know, before it was like, yeah, like I'm not Australian, I'm not Cambodian, obviously, but and I live here for for a while, but I'm foreign, but I wasn't being made to feel like a foreigner um and here i mean londoners are lovely and so it hasn't been the case as my in my everyday life but the political rhetoric has been so angry that i've had moments when i've hesitated to you know speak french on the phone mm. in the bus or on the street because i was just like maybe maybe it was just in my head but it's just it is what the ambiance is that that you even think about these things which i never used to before so interesting how much a, a life somewhere can be characterized by the political events. I mean, from the one I've spent some time teaching in a journalism program, and from that perspective, it was great because you never had to wonder, you know, what are we going to cover today? It's sort of like every day. yeah. It's like where 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 do you where do you begin? And so it, it's great to have protests and people engaged and I mean I feel like that's what the past four years have been like you know the protests the 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 debate yes angry and not always pleasant but it uh reminds you the importance of being politically engaged mm-hmm. but yeah not the um and, and I, I I've been thinking I need to read some 
some history books about 2012 just to remind myself because I'm remembering this sort of with the with the rosy glow but I'm sure it wasn't as perfect as I was I've been remembering and nor I think maybe when we look back on the past four years there have been happy times too it's just um it's hard, it's hard to see beyond the uh kind of constant yeah. constant headlines um yeah that. and I you know and when you're an EU citizen it's just been um four years of watching your rights being taken away you know like I plan to move here with the expectation that you know I was allowed to live here however long I wanted I was allowed to change jobs without having to worry about or to or you know go and start my own business which is what I'm doing right now um I came here with the expectation that I was allowed to vote in mm. in a number of at least the local elections which impact the taxes that I'm paying and uh, you know the way that I'm living um I came here with the expectation that going home to to my family was as easy as commuting you know going going back to to France to Normandy um and all of these expectations have just been you know, challenge one after the other so that I'm losing my franchise, I'm losing my freedom of movement. Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to like see into the future because we don't know what, I mean, there's still no deal, right? So we don't know um, whether, you know, I'm going to still have healthcare coverage when I go home. Am I still going to have, uh, you know, what what's happening with with my pension and my retirement rights in the future? if I decide to retire back in the EU. I mean, so, so all these things are very, very concrete. And not only are we losing those rights, but we're not even having visibility into what they're going to be, which is why when you tell me, you know, do you see yourself in, in London as your forever home? I don't know because I don't have all the elements to answer the question. I'm still waiting on the government to, to tell me. And the reality is that even if there is a deal by December 31st, which is the deadline, it's going to be a very thin deal because they don't have the time anymore to do everything. And so it's probably going to be years before we really have clarity. And it's already been um, almost five years. So that's that's a good chunk out of people's lives spent wondering. My gosh, it's so stressful. And you have to figure that if people like you just get fed up, like I'm, I'm going, going back to France or going back to whatever, it's a loss for the UK. But for you, you could live in any of the other EU countries. Yeah, well, I mean that's 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 the thing with. Um, I did a whole episode of Borderline um, back this summer with Colin Yeo, who is an immigration lawyer and wrote a, wrote a whole. Um, book about the British uh, hostile environment immigration system, which is really interesting. And um, and a point that he was making is that the assumption that a lot of these anti-immigrant politicians make, um, or that is that if you set up a system that says, oh, we only want the most qualified, or we only want, you know, here's this point system about who we want to get, and uh, and if you have a, a hostile environment. People are not going to want to come. Like it's you can't just say we're going to take just the best immigrants and everyone else out, because when you're being hostile, the quote unquote best immigrants, as much as I hate that that hierarchy, mm. are the first ones who are going to go because they have options. Uh, and so what you actually end up doing is is just uh, 
turning off all the people that you that you want to attract to your country um and so it, it just doesn't work that way on, on top of the fact that it's pretty ridiculous to say that you only want you know the highly qualified immigrants when the jobs that actually need filling are not those jobs <laughs> it's not what the business community is asking for either if you pay attention so um yeah it's it's all it's all very uh counterproductive well what uh what episodes do you have coming up like what, what are you looking to for 2021 what do you think will be the uh the huh. points? um you know i think I don't I don't have 2021 plan by the way it's like you know uh, it's launching a new a new podcast a new media venture is like you're running a train and you're laying the tracks in front of the train as the train is going so I uh, literally like I'm always like oh my god what's happening tomorrow I don't know so I literally don't have another episode in the pipeline right now but I'm really interested I think the interviews that have been the most enriching and I've gotten the best feedback from actually are just speaking with um, with global citizens about their own experiences and and the questions that they have raised. So, um, you know, I spoke to um, Danny uh, Ferdos Al-Farouk uh, on his experience and he's, you know, Bangladeshi, Swedish, Polish, American. And, and and so we talked about kind of all the different stereotypes and how people can't put him in a box. And I just had a, my last episode with, with was with uh, Marcella Kunova, who's a Slovak immigrant. Um, and she talked about shame and how people have made her feel about her accent and things like that and how that plays against immigrants. Um I talked about resilience with um, a friend in Lebanon and just how battered the Lebanese people and their diaspora has been for years and years and how resilience is a nice idea, but it ends up being resignation and people just accept crap uh, happening to them. So, you know, each of those stories have just kind of brought up a different theme and a different aspect of the global life that I thought was really interesting. So I'm really interested in in um, continuing to explore that. I think it's going to be interesting in 2021, you know, now that Donald Trump is going to be out of office, he was one of the, I mean, he was the main cheerleader of that, of that rhetoric, of that anti-immigrant, anti-globalist rhetoric with, you know, Brexit kind of ending. It's not really going to end because it's going to be a problem for a long time to come, but, but at least the the main talks ending by the end of the year, you know, the British government might be able to move on to different things. Maybe Boris Johnson is signaling that he wants to go back to a slightly more centrist perspective. We'll see. I don't know. I'm not entirely confident in Priti Patel, but mm. if she's out at some point, we there might be hope. So I think it's going to be interesting in 2021 to see whether all these things that have been woken up and, and you know, come out of the ground in the last five years are going to, you know, go back in hibernation or if it's just still going to be part of our discourse, I think probably the latter. And it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how we rebuild a sense of togetherness and community in the world. I think people like us have a, have a big part in that because by virtue of belonging to different cultures, to different places, I think we're able to understand 
the many sides of the conversation and uh, and build bridges in a way that you just can't when you don't have that perspective. Well, that's a great note to end on. Uh, please tell us again where we can find Borderline. It is a podcast and a newsletter for Define Global Citizens, and you can find everything at borderlinepod.com. You can reach out to me. You can subscribe. You can become a member. Everything. Borderlinepod.com. Well, thanks a lot and look forward to listening more. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone who joined us on this episode of How to Build a Village. We look forward to seeing you next time.